Well, today we look at another famous saying of Jesus. So you'll see Noreen had read the verses from my last sermon a couple weeks ago. That really sets up the context for what we'll be talking about today, which is just one verse. We've studied some well-known verses and phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? Judge not that you be not judged. Ask and you shall receive. Well, here we have another one. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, how many of you, you can, you can raise your hand, it's okay. How many of you know this as the golden rule? Anyone, anyone heard of the golden rule before? So nobody in this section over here, okay. But on my sides, you, you guys have heard this before. The, 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 the golden rule. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe this is your very first time, you've probably heard of the golden rule. I was speaking with my kids at lunch and they said it's all over their school, outside the counselor's office. It's written, the, the golden rule. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. A very famous, very common phrase. We've, we've all heard it. We've all seen it written. But what does it mean? And what's our motivation in keeping it? Well, over the next few minutes, we're going to focus on just one phrase. So next week, just for, I guess, your third reminder, we'll be at the Rhoda, and I'll be finishing the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be looking at verses 13 all the way through 29. So 17 verses. We'll finish up our series in the Sermon on the Mount next Friday. But today, we're just going to pause and look at one verse. I thought we'd get further when I started studying, but here's where we're going to be at today, verse 12. And we're going to look at the golden rule. And if you're taking notes... Just two short points. First, we'll look at the meaning of the golden rule. And then we'll see our motivation in keeping the golden rule. So there, verse 12, the meaning and then our motivation. Well, let's first start with the meaning. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the meaning of this verse. It's not... That difficult. I didn't have to spend too much time this week trying to figure out exactly what it says. And yet it's one of the most unique phrases or commands in all of history. Jesus is the only religious leader who speaks like this. Now you might think, oh, wait, 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 pastor. Um, actually, I've heard a lot of people speak like this. Others have said things like this. Well, you'd be right and you'd be wrong in saying that. There are others who've said similar things. Hillel, the renowned Jewish rabbi, once said, what is hateful to yourself do to no other, well, that is the whole law. In the book of Tobit, written several centuries before Jesus, Listen to this. There's a hero and he tells his son, what thou thyself hatest do to no man. Even the philosopher Confucius is credited as saying, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. 
Well, at first glance, then the golden rule doesn't look very unique, does it? Doesn't seem very special. Maybe looks like it doesn't even originate with Jesus. But that's not true. It's actually quite distinct and quite unique. Jesus is saying not what everyone else has said throughout all of history, but something radically different. Did you notice something when I read those examples to you? Now, they are similar to verse 12, which is up on the screens. But did you notice a difference? See, the golden rule is actually unique to Jesus after all. Jesus takes that teaching, teaching that's been around for a long time. He actually takes that teaching and with one simple change, with one little tweak, turns the whole thing on its head. He changes it completely. Now, by way of illustrating how one little tweak can, can change something drastically, uh, back in the 17th century, there was an instrument called the harpsichord. Now, we still have harpsichords today. They're just not played very much. But back in the 17th century, the harpsichord was one of the, the main instruments, one of the main musical instruments. And the way you played the harpsichord was you would you, you'd push the keys. And when you pushed a key inside the harpsichord, underneath it was an arm with a pick on it. And that pick would pluck, um, would, 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 would pluck a string. And you'd have a note. And the harpsichord uh, played, played beautiful music. It was the chief instrument in Europe. And yet, it was a limiting instrument. It was slow. And then in the early 18th century, an unknown Italian musician made a small alteration. Again, with a keyboard. But this time, when you pluck and, or when you push down on the keys, instead of a pick underneath plucking the string, he attached a hammer. And when you would push push down on the keys, for this instrument, that hammer would pound the string. And now instead of a harpsichord, magic, magically you had a piano. That little tiny alteration, that little small change changed music forever. Well, the harpsichord became the piano and of course has led to all kinds of brilliant compositions from folks like Brahms and Chopin. One little change, one small tweak made all the difference. Well, Jesus made one little change to that well-known teaching, and he flipped it completely upside down. Well, how did he do this? Well, all the other teachings, all the other examples that I gave you just a few minutes ago were all negative. They say something like, do not do anything to anyone that you would not want them to do to you. Now, Jesus, instead, he presents this truth positively. In making that little change that you may not have even noticed when I read those examples, in making that little change, Jesus does something dramatic. Jesus changes the scope of the message immeasurably. It's far more active and demanding. I mean, think about it. The negative version limits your actions, right? Don't do mean things to people because you don't want them doing mean things back to you. So don't do such and such. Don't do this. Don't do that. 
But Jesus comes around and invents the piano and changes everything. Well, the positive is far more searching and substantive. He says, whatever you want done to you, go out and do to others. There's no permission to be passive. There's no opportunity to to withdraw. There's no invitation to simply not be mean. Well, it's not enough to simply avoid inflicting harm on others. You do good, and Jesus says there's no limit to your goodness. Well, look at the second word in the verse. Whatever. Now, that small word means something really massive. It means in everything. The language is emphatic. It's more than a simple all. Well, the scope is unlimited. Whatever you wish others would do to you means here anything at all that you want others to do to you. Everything, whatever, all things. That's what you're to do to others. Well, Jesus gives no conditions. He just says, do it. Whatever, whatever it is, all things. Isn't that an astonishing charge? Now, it would be impossible this afternoon to mention all areas of our lives that we should apply this command to. That's part of Jesus' point. There's not a checklist. We're not going to put up on the screens a checklist of here's the 20 things you must do in keeping the golden rule. There's no checklist and then we're done. There's no moment when we fully obey and finish off this command and then we're finished. We do it, we follow it in every area of our lives and then we keep doing it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's an every day for the rest of your life kind of command. Now, while there's no checklist, it would be wise to consider a few ways of application. Well, how about in the area of encouragement? You know how meaningful it is to receive an encouraging email or an encouraging note. It's wonderful to get one sent to you. Well, then why not write one yourself? Why not be on the hunt to identify evidences of God's grace in his people and then to tell them about it? And instead of gossiping or talking about someone behind their back about something negative, why not talk directly to them or about them positively? And what if instead of gossip givers, we were grace givers? What if instead of gossiping, we were looking out for ways to be gracious to others? I mean, just imagine for a minute here at Re- with Redeemer Church of Dubai, if we as a church would start hearing of people, we'd start hearing rumors of people in the church saying nice things about us. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be wonderful if we were a community where you start hearing things that people were saying about you that were nice and God-honoring and Christ-exalting and encouraging? Well, here's another application. How about humility? We all like humble people. No one enjoys the person who runs through their CV every time you're together. Instead of being that person, why not let God be your public relations department? No need to tell everyone everything. If God wants to get it out into the public, 
he will. Instead of sharing every detail about your accomplishments, instead of being in a conversation with someone and looking for opportunities to share something about yourself or what you've done or your awards or accomplishments, instead, what if each and every one of us took an active interest in that other person's life? Radically change our community. How about in terms of volunteering? Now, we all enjoy being with the church body on Fridays. We all enjoy it when other people volunteer for church on Fridays. We're thankful for those who volunteer to teach our children the Bible every week. We're thankful for those who set up the venue. We're thankful for our connections and ushers and all the other volunteers. We're glad they serve us. Maybe the rest of us should sign ourselves up to serve on Fridays to bless the rest of us. Well, how about giving? Pastor Scott mentioned giving and giving throughout the summer and making a plan for our giving and so that the the church can continue on in its ministry. I I love that advice. I love that reminder even for me as I travel. We like the ministry of the church continuing. We like giving to missions. We like giving to churches that we've planted. We like being able to meet in a venue. We like being able to care for the staff. We like being able to carry out various ministries in the church. We love our church. We're thankful for God's work in and through Redeemer here in Dubai. We're grateful for it. We praise God for his work through other people's generosity. Now, are you giving generously to the ministry of the church so that the ministry of this church continues for the rest of us? Or how about this one? I always dread finding out that someone assumed the worst about me. Maybe you can think of examples where someone assumed your motives or assumed something bad about you and it hurts you. But I'll confess... Unfortunately, I do the same thing at times. We want others to assume the best in us, but then we assume the worst in others. Let's flip that script. Let's not make judgment, but assume the best. And so when a car is coming up fast behind us, trying to give us a little car hug on Sheikh Zayed Road, you know, the friendly type that likes to get really close on the roads, Let's not get angry and assume they're trying to pick a fight. Let's gently just move out of the way. Just gently get into the next lane over. Maybe they're late for an appointment or an important meeting and we'll we'll lose their job if they're late. Maybe they're on their way to a family emergency. Now we might smirk and think that's highly unlikely, but we really don't know. Now why, not just on the road, but just in life in general, why do our minds immediately go to the worst possible motives? I mean, just think about examples in your life when someone's hurt you or someone's offended you or someone's just angered you. Instead of automatically in your heart thinking the best about that person, why is it that so often our tendency instead is to swing all the way the other way and to think the worst about someone? I mean, what if we, as a church, what if we were a community that assumed the best motives, that assumed the best in others? Let's give people the benefit of the doubt because we like receiving the benefit of the doubt. This is the kind of thing Jesus is getting at here in verse 12. Not work when we have a mean boss. Let's treat them the way we'd like them to treat us. 
Those who are married, you may at times feel like your spouse is your greatest enemy. You might think if your spouse just, just loved you better, maybe you think to yourself, if just my wife or my husband would just love me well, would just do this or do that, then I'd be happy, then I'd be fulfilled, then everything in life would be okay. And what you do when you're thinking that you're holding back something, you're holding back grace from them until you receive it. And what Jesus is saying in verse 12, he says, no, you treat them first the way you want to be treated. There's no keeping score in Jesus's book. There's no keeping score on how you're being loved. You don't treat others based on how they're treating you. Jesus says, no, you treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, Jesus' command is beyond what any earthly teacher has ever said. We treat even the hardest to love people well, and we don't base our actions on their actions. Their behavior towards us is not our barometer for how we treat them. I mean, just, just take a minute, even, even now, and just think to yourself, you might not come up with the exact one person, but, but maybe the most difficult person in your life to love, or maybe one of the more difficult people in your life to love. Just think about who that is. Maybe it's someone who's hurt you in some way or offended you. Someone deep down, if you're just being really honest, just someone you don't like. Jesus is telling you to treat that person well. Jesus is telling you to treat that person the way you want to be treated, to do unto them what you'd want done to you. If we follow Jesus' teaching, if we did this, we'd never be mean, always be generous, never harsh, always gracious, never cruel, always nice. Oh, Redeemer Church, this text isn't that hard to understand, is it? It's quite simple. Pretty, pretty, pretty understandable. Treat others the way you want to be treated. It's plain and simple. But what's our motivation in all this? Why should we do it? And what will give us the power to actually do it? What's the second point this morning? We've seen the meaning of the golden rule, the meaning of Jesus' teaching in verse 12. What about our motivation? So that's the second point today. Our motivation in keeping the golden rule. Well, many ascribe to the golden rule because of what they think they can get out of it. It goes something like this. If I do this for you, then you'll do this for me. I'll scratch your back. But hey, you've got to scratch my back too. If I apologize to you, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you to apologize to me for all that you've done. Now, surely you've heard that the golden rule is a good rule to live by. It's not the nice human thing to do. And if you do it for someone else, well, you'll receive their kindness back to you. That's, that's the human teaching. But there's a problem with that understanding. It's because Jesus never promises that people will be nice to you if you treat them well. I mean, have you noticed that in your life? Jesus actually promises something completely different in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He actually promises the opposite. Do you remember way back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. If if you're faithful to to Christ's mission in the world, you will, will be persecuted. Others will revile you. You will face pain. So when you do golden rule types of things, you may face pain. And so as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount's a, a missional document that God is telling us to be salt. He's telling us to be light out into the world. He's telling us to be on mission. If you take the gospel to people who need it, you may get persecuted. And we know as Christians, that's the greatest act of love that we can do. To take the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, Christ's death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news is the greatest act of love that we can do, that we can share, that we can show. It's the greatest act of social justice in the world. It's the greatest compassion ministry in the world is to take the gospel to those who need it. And yet Jesus tells us that some may hurt us if we do that. You're kind to an enemy. They may eat you alive. Now, your motivation can't be, I'll do this golden rule thing so that others will do the golden rule kind of thing back for me. Jesus says that's not how it's going to work. It's not the promise of a better life. There has to be another motivation. Look at the last phrase of verse 12. It's the phrase that you're not going to find outside the counselor door. It's not the thing your teacher is going to tell you. But the last phrase of verse 12, for this is the law and the prophets. Instead, Jesus says the reason we do get to others is because this kind of behavior sums up the law and the prophets. Now, the expression law and prophets was used to refer to the whole Old Testament. To say the rule is the law and the prophets means that the rule sums up God's revelation and the Old Testament teaching as a whole. So we live this out to honor God, to glorify him, to be obedient to him. It's for the pleasure of God. And we're motivated to do this because of what God has done for us. Now, it's interesting. The golden rule is often quoted, but it's almost always quoted without the first word. You can see it there. First word of the verse, so. It's hardly ever quoted with the word so. If you have a different translation, different version of the Bible, you may see the word therefore. Again, most times it's quoted, we leave those words out. But whenever we see one of those words, it's a marker for us in our Bible study. It's a marker for us to look back, to to look back, to look at the context. We always want to study the context of Scripture. That's why we had those verses Prior to this, verses 7 through 11, read for us by Noreen earlier in the service so that you could have the whole context of this passage. Whenever we see the word therefore or the word so, we need to look back. So what is Jesus pointing back to here? Well, in the previous verses, Jesus asks us to pray to our Father. Just like an earthly father won't give a rock to a hungry kid, Jesus is telling us that God, our Father loves us even more. Therefore, 
So because God gives you good gifts, because God treats you so well, because we have a father in heaven who loves us, because he cares for you and answers your prayers, because he's a good and gracious God, because God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, because Christ died for us while we were in rebellion to him. Therefore, so now do unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, our motivation has to be for something bigger than ourselves. We'll only be motivated to carry out God's commands when we see all that God has done for us. Our remedy for self-absorption is understanding that we've received everything from God. If we don't look to Christ's love first, the golden rule will be impossible to pursue. Oh, Redeemer Church, the love of God has to be our motivation. It's the only way our community will be marked by unconditional love. And so if you're here and you don't yet follow Jesus, in order to do unto others what you'd want them to do unto you, you need help. We all need help, but if you don't yet know Jesus, you need some fundamental life changing help, because this is an impossible rule to follow apart from God. Now, a rule is something you live by. It's a measuring stick. It's where we get the word ruler from. In British English, it would be called the straight edge. You could call this the golden straight edge. It's God's standard that shows us just how crooked and sinful our lives really are. I mean, imagine just for a minute, a group of five-year-olds in art class. And the art teacher gives these little kids an assignment. And the teacher tells the kids to take out a piece of paper and to draw the straightest line they could draw. So the kids all take their paper and they all draw a straight line down the center of their page. And of course, the kids are all comparing their lines to one another. One kid thinks he's got the straightest line or she's got the straightest line in the world. And so they're bragging to their other friends, look at my line. And all the kids are comparing their great and straight lines to one another. But then the teacher takes a straight edge, a ruler, and the teacher goes to each of the children's papers, and with that straight edge, with that rule, with that ruler, draws a perfect line there on each of the kids' papers. Kids aren't so proud about their straight line anymore, are they? Even the best line looks really crooked with the ruled line next to it. Even that one child boasting about their line sees the truth about their art. Well, friends, none of us can keep God's golden straight edge, God's golden rule. Our lives are all crooked in comparison to God. If we're going to live out the golden rule, we need God to save us and to change us. And the New Testament reiterates the law of God from the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And very similar to what we have today, love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to love our neighbor we have to first love God and be loved by him. You have to be, be a recipient of God's goodness to carry this out. And the way to do this is simply to admit that you've sinned against God. It's to recognize 
your inability to do anything good and your need to be reconciled to him. You place your faith in Christ to save you from death and judgment. If you do that, he'll save you. He'll save you from death and judgment in this life and the life to come. Oh, God's provided the only way to go from death to life by sending his son Jesus to live the life that you and I couldn't live, to die the death that you and I deserved to die on the cross. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead to prove that it was all true. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, turn from your sins, trust in Jesus to save you. You can do that right now from your seat tonight. There's no aisle to walk down. There's no prayer to pray. There's no hand to raise. There's no religious activity to go and do. Just right there in your seat, just to trust in him to save you, to trust him to forgive you of your sins and to draw you in relationship with him. And when you do that, God changes your heart. Oh, it's in Christ alone that you can be saved. And friends, church, it's in Christ alone where we as a church will find the power to love others like we see here in verse 12. It's only in the power of Jesus that we can do any of these things. And so church, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word teaches us that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Oh, Father, would our church be a loving community that seeks the good of others simply because you are good to us? And we see that first and foremost in the gospel of Christ. We thank you for Jesus' death on the cross to save us from our sins. Oh, Father, we thank you for that good news today. You are indeed good. And it's in Christ alone that we can do these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.